Thank you for tuning in to the latest message from Island Church, Dundalk. Good evening, church. So I'm uh, just going to take this evening to um, go through Daniel chapter 3. Now, if you've been here the last couple of weeks, we have covered the first two chapters of Daniel and the first six chapters of Daniel share the account of uh, Daniel's life as he was in captivity in Babylon. Um, So uh, chapter 3 is one of the most well-known of all the accounts of his time. (laughs) Sorry. Thank you, dear. But as we go through it, I just, uh, you know, hope the the Lord's going to unfold to us some new revelation, some new truth uh, that's going to shine a light in a different way maybe than we've seen it before. And so, you know what, let's just, let me just pray. Father God, thank you so much for the opportunity to come, to get into your word, to dig into the treasure of your word together, Lord. Thank you that as we dig into this treasure, your Holy Spirit unfolds this treasure before us, unfolds this word to us, Lord, that that you have words that aren't even coming out of my mouth, but they're coming into the hearts of your people, Lord. So we thank you and praise you. We honor your word. We we are so thankful for it, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So I'm just going to kind of go like I have been verse by verse and... uh, This first um, verse here in the beginning of of Daniel chapter 3 is going to connect us back to the former chapter. So I'm going to explain a bit of that. But here in Daniel chapter 3 verse 1 it says, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Jura in the province of Babylon. Okay, let's go back to last week, what we were talking about. Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, if you remember. And in that dream, um, God spoke through Daniel, um, used Daniel as a vessel, and gave not only the interpretation of the dream, but he actually had to tell the king what the dream was. The king would not reveal that. And by doing so, by revealing that, um, God was able to save not only the lives of Daniel and his friends, but of all of the wise men that were called to this challenge from the king. Um, well, in that dream, there was an image or a statue, and the head of it was gold. That represented the kingdom of Babylon. That was King Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. But underneath that head of gold, there were lots of other materials that represented other kingdoms that were going to come after his. Okay? Now, what King Nebuchadnezzar's doing here is he is setting up this really high image, and it's not just a head of gold. It's all gold. Okay, so this is a huge statement he is making. It's a statement of defiance against this word. Even though he accepted what this dream meant, he knew that God showed the dream and showed the right interpretation of it, he was openly defying it. He was saying, this image is all of gold, and I'm making this to signify my kingdom's never-ending. My kingdom's going on forever. This was the attitude of Nebuchadnezzar. This was the kind of ruler he was. So that attaches back to that dream. Um, that uh, size of it, just to give you an idea, it was more of an obelisque. It was a really tall, narrow shape, so it would have been about 30 meters high by only 3 meters wide. 
so very tall and skinny, and to this day, in that plain of Dura, there is a huge 20-foot-high perfect square um, that archaeologists have found and said that would have been the base of a massive statue. So there's evidence to this day of what happens there. Um, okay, so we're going to look now at verses 2 through 7. It says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the people heard the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, this ceremony that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar put together, um, this would have been the who's who of Babylon. It would have been drawing from all of the regions of this nation, of this kingdom, and all the important people who had some sort of title or some sort of office in the nation were called together to come to the dedication of this statue. Now, normally that would be an invitation. <coughs> King Nebuchadnezzar, it's more of a command. You know, everyone would have been in fear of their life not to come. And, you know, it's Daniel who is recording this account. It's interesting because Daniel is not in this account at all. Um, I think we're going to see as we go through uh, what happens to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego um, that it's most likely Daniel was present, uh, but he was able to, he was kind of under the radar. You know, he wasn't caught. Okay. So we have all of these high up people in the kingdom commanded to come together. The object of their worship is not one of the Babylonian gods. Babylon had loads of gods. And this was something very different because the king was gathering these people together not to worship their gods, which they had, but this huge representation of the kingdom. So he was bringing the worship of his people away from the gods and basically to worship him or to worship the kingdom of Babylon. And that's what that statue represented. Uh, so this command to worship is under threat of death because as we know, Nebuchadnezzar ruled by intimidation and fear. And generally, the people complied. I mean, if you were asked to do something, you know, like this, uh, and the threat was that there's literally right beside the king this huge furnace that is, you know, blaringly hot, that you can feel the heat coming off of it, you can see it, all your senses know what this is and what it's for, that it is to throw humans into, uh, it it really puts a pressure or a demand on you to make a decision. But the thing is, is that everyone here still had a decision, still had a choice to make. Um, but the majority of them made the choice to bow down and to worship this image. Okay, so then 
Uh, Let's look at verses 8 through 12. It says, Therefore at that time certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, in these words, you can just hear them dripping with immaturity of, you know, little children tattletelling on each other. And that's basically what these Chaldeans were doing. But, you know, when we think back to the background, just the chapter before this, the Chaldeans' lives had all been saved because of what Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel had done. They, as a team, had prayed and sought God and got the king this dream that no one else could tell him, and it saved the Chaldeans' life. So the Chaldeans owed their lives to these people, and yet here they are. They have obviously been watching them very closely (laughs) and had their eyes on them because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not have had, there would not have been a problem had these certain men not been watching them to make a mistake for the purpose of turning it over to the king. You know, they had a very um, strong motive here. And I I just think it's interesting. Um, Anytime there's promotion, anytime, you know, there's success within the kingdom where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had all been given promotions, as you remember, um, over these other Chaldeans and over these other uh, magicians and whatnot. And so here they are. They've got a higher position and something called envy sneaks in, you know, and that is a very powerful emotion or character trait, whatever you want to call it. It's um, just a very dangerous one. And so even though these three were part of the team that saved the lives, they cannot stand the favor and the prominent positions that they were given. And uh, it just reminds me of something that it says in in James 3.16, talks about jealousy or envy. Uh, And I had it pulled up in the Passion Translation here. But... um, In James 3.16, it says, wherever jealousy or envy and selfishness or self-promotion are uncovered, you will also find many troubles, chaos, instability, disorder, and every kind of meanness, every kind of vile practice or evil wickedness. Okay, so this is the kind of thing you're going to find when there's envy present. This is the fruit of it. This is uh, part of Satan's ministry here on this earth is to produce these kind of things in people like envy, where they cannot stand for someone else to be given a position above them or for them to achieve something that maybe they themselves wanted to achieve. And so they seek to harm. They seek harm in that. Um, now that is contrasted with just the next few verses here. Um, verses 17 and 18 uh, then contrast this ministry of the devil and this uh, fruit that comes from what he's doing with envy and selfishness, and it's um, the wisdom from God. It says, but the wisdom from above is always pure, filled with peace, considerate, and teachable. 
It is filled with love and never displays prejudice or hypocrisy in any form. It always bears the beautiful harvest of righteousness. Good seeds of wisdom's fruit will be planted with peaceful acts by those who cherish making peace. And obviously, you know, these are the kind of traits that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking in here. And they had such a desire, you know, to to make peace. They cherished making peace. Now, if we think about uh, this big event that's going on and, you know, you have been ordered to do something that you were completely in disagreement with, you do not want to do it. Um, A lot of people have the tendency to make a big fuss to call attention to themselves, shout, rail, you know, get angry, uh, start a fight. You know, there's all of these kind of things that can have a tendency to happen when there's a pressurized situation, when you're, you know, fighting against something you don't believe in, right? Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they cherished making peace, so they did not do any of these things. They simply quietly did what they believed. They quietly obeyed God. They respectfully obeyed God. Now, uh, the outcome of that (laughs) was still, uh, you know, a hard one. It wasn't that it made everything, it didn't mean there was not a problem, but it did mean that the way that they were handling it, it was seen as different. You know, everything they did was seen as different. Um, You know, uh, Jeremiah 29, 4 through 14, Let's flip over that really quick, because this gives an explanation. While these people were in Babylon, they were given instructions as to how to live while they were in Babylon by the prophet, Jer- or, yeah, the prophet Jeremiah. And this Jeremiah 29, 11 is the one that everyone likes to, to quote, but if we start in Jeremiah 29, 4, um, we're going to see the instructions from the Lord to the, to the people to God's people who are in exile. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons, give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord, a host of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you hope and a future. Okay, so this is the instructions that the Lord is giving to his people as they're in exile. And, you know, it really stood out to me. Seek the welfare of this city. Uh, Pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. You know, he instructed his people to seek the good of Babylon because where there was good and and where things were happening right in Babylon, it would be good for them. And so that's where we have this seeking of peace, where we have Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego handling things in a way that was, it was never to harm. 
They never came against or fought against or rose up against and tried to harm Babylon because God had given them very specific instructions. Um, Okay, let's look at verses 13 through 15. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the hornpipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But... If you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Okay, so the king is furious. He knew full well that their God had revealed his dream, but in complete pride, he is defying their God and declaring himself, his kingdom, worthy of worship. Um, He made a big mistake, though, when he made that last statement. He said, And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He challenged their God just like Goliath did. Okay, this was the same thing that Goliath did. He not only challenged them as a people, he challenged their God and said, who does your God think he is that he could save you? And right there he made his biggest mistake because these young men, they knew their covenant just like David did. Just like David had no fear and he was in complete confidence as he came up against Goliath. That's the same thing that these three men see. They see a man who is daring, daring to uh, speak against, to challenge, to contest the power of the one and only true God, the creator of the universe. And in doing that, They had no doubt. I mean, to them, that was just that sealed the deal. Okay, it's done. He just challenged our God. God's coming through, you know, and they knew it. They were settled in it. And here we see their reply in verses 16 through 18. It says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that he will not, we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now, in these verses, uh, there's some of the most misinterpreted scripture in all of the Bible. Um, when they said, if this be so, okay, if what be so? They're saying, if you throw us into the furnace, if this be so, if you decide to go through with this and throw us into the furnace, then what's going to happen? Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will, he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. It is a certainty, okay? Now, the next words, in some translations they add in, but if he doesn't, or if, if he, okay, that's not in the original Hebrew. That's why my ESV, it says, but if not, but if you don't throw us in the furnace, if you don't throw us in the furnace, we're still not going to bow down. Now let's just use a little common sense for a moment here because this really, really annoys me. (laughs) Okay. 
It's not saying, but if he doesn't do it, if God doesn't come through, it's not saying, well, if he does it, then my God's going to save us. But if he doesn't do it, then we're still not going to bow down. No, there's no, if he doesn't save you, you're dead. There's nothing to bow down to if you're dead. So it doesn't even in common sense make sense, but this verse like has been so misused by religion and it has been so mistranslated and mis, uh, it misrepresents our father and it makes him seem, which is what religion always does, is it strips him of his love, it strips him of his faithfulness, it paints him as this mean, hard, unwilling to keep his covenant kind of God. And he is not unwilling to keep his covenant. He promises, he is faithful, he will keep his covenant. So when you read these verses, you're going to have to read them through the right lens and you're going to have to say no to what religion has tried to put upon our God. You know, people have made a doctrine about this. When I was studying this out, it is amazing to me how many people focus in on that verse and say, well, if God doesn't, then... You know, we're still, we still won't bow down. Well, no, you're going to be dead. But if he, you know, if God doesn't come through, then, you know, God's still good. And that's, and that's what they're basically trying to make a point of is, you know, maybe he will, maybe he won't. Just like, can you imagine if David had said that about Goliath? Like, my, if my God comes through, then I'm going to squash you like a bug and chop off your head. But if he doesn't, you know, then I'm, I'm still not going to bow down to you. David never said anything like that. That wasn't in his vocabulary. He knew his covenant. He trusted his God. He knew the covenant that he walked in, and he was certain. He was sure of it. And it's the same thing with these three guys. We cannot look at this text as though it's saying, maybe he will, maybe he won't. We'll see. You know, we have to strip off that religious translation there and look at our God through the right eyes. And I just challenge all of you. Seek this out for yourself. Study and show yourself approved. You know, Pastor Rusty is who taught this to us this way, and but we went back and we studied it on our own, and that revelation just started coming through and coming through as we studied this out, and we saw, oh, you know, that is that just settles with our spirit. That's so good. That's what God is saying here. He is not saying, maybe I won't come through. You know, he's, no, he's saying, if the king throws you in the fire, I'm going to come through. If the king doesn't throw you in the fire, you're still not going to bow down. So that is what the text is saying there. We just need to have that settled. Okay? (laughs) Okay, so going on to verse 19 to 23, it says, Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know that's a bad sign when you get the look from the king. (laughs) Okay, so he ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments, and they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace. Because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated, the flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. Now, here we see this, the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. And what that pride produced was this rage. He was so angry. He, he was so in hatred that these three men were not afraid of him, that he could not control, 
control them. You know, that is the, um, the biggest ministry or the biggest um, motive of the enemy is to control people, okay? Now, we've talked about before, one of the ways control comes about is by intimidation. That's what uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was great at. And when he used that intimidation, that spirit of intimidation was all over this situation. And when these three refused to give in to that spirit of intimidation, they refused to bow to that, how furious it made that king, you know, because what did we talk about? We talked about their hearts had already been captivated by their God. So even though they were captive in the physical, he, he didn't have their hearts. King Nebuchadnezzar could not control where their loyalty was, where their faithfulness was. He couldn't control that. And right here, this is coming to the surface and being shown. And King Nebuchadnezzar is seeing, certainly, these men do not belong to him. They don't bow to him. They're not his. They belong to someone else, and he hates it. Okay? And because of being irrational from this anger, you know, he actually got some of his loyal servants killed in the process because he heated up the fire so much to make this point. You know, he was so angry that he was going to make this point. He heated up the fire that even the men trying to put them in were killed. So... Uh, verse 24 through 30 says, Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. So here we see the famous appearance of the fourth man. You know, this is what um, so many sermons have been preached on, you know, such a, a, a depiction of this physical um, fire that these men are walking through, this physical hardship, this trial that they're going through, but they're not alone. You know, there is a fourth man in the fire with them. And... You know, many scholars would believe this was the pre-incarnate Christ, Jesus the rescuer. That's, that's what I would believe. This was Jesus the rescuer. He has always been. He was, you know, before. He's now. He will forever be. He was here during Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's uh, trial. And it just depends on how you look at it. Like down a bit further, the king does uh, make mention of an angel. Um, calling this, this rescuer an angel. And so you do have scholars who would say, oh, it's not Jesus, it's an angel. But just depends on how you look at the Word of God and if everything in the Word of God points to Jesus. And if Jesus is our rescuer, if that's who we know him as, then that's how we see this first, you know. Um, but the, the wonderful thing is that it fulfilled promises, um, Isaiah 43.2 says, When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. The flame shall not consume you. That was a promise God made to his people. And right here, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are walking in that promise. Um, it, it didn't even singe them. Here, we'll get to that now. It says, uh, then King Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's counselors gathered together and saw 
that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, no smell of fire had come upon them. Now that in itself is, you know, that, what a testimony of there wasn't even an outward sign. There was no physical evidence that they had been in a fire at all. You know, if you saw these men, you would never imagine they had even been anywhere near a fire, because even getting near a fire produces a smell. But they didn't even have a smell. You know, nothing, nothing by any means harmed them. And uh, I, just, I just love the faithfulness that, you know, could have had their uh, clothes get burned off or, you know, some sign that there had been a fire, but it was wholeness. It was completeness. It was the same work that Jesus did when he was upon this earth. And he, the leper came back to thank him. And that leper not only got healed, that leper got made whole. That means there was no evidence upon his body that he had ever been a leper. There was no evidence upon these men that they had ever been burned in a furnace. Okay. So uh, let's finish off the text here. It says... Um, Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. It produced a respect in this king. He hated them a few minutes ago, but his tone had surely changed towards them now. He had a respect for them, that they were willing to offer up their bodies and say, do to us what you will, but we're not bowing. Therefore, I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn, limb from limb, and their houses laid to ruin. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So that is the end of chapter three. Now, chapter four is kind of interesting. I just want to give a brief, brief synopsis of that because that's the last account we have of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's where um, it switches in the account from that king to another king and then in chapter six to the last king that Daniel served under. So uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, though, you know, it just seems every time God showed uh, evidence of his power to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar recognized it. He saw it. He knew it. And then he went right back to exalting himself, to pride. Just like Pharaoh in Egypt did, it was the same kind of hard-heartedness that he would see that power. He'd recognize it, but he would refuse to bow to it. And so here we have in, in chapter 4, um, Nebuchadnezzar in the beginning of the chapter. Now this is all written from his perspective. Daniel collected this account that Nebuchadnezzar actually wrote himself. And I just want to share a few of the, the verses with you. But at the beginning here in verse 3, he's praising God. Um, he's saying, how great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Okay, so then he was at ease in his house and prospering in his palace. 
he went right back to being regular old Nebuchadnezzar. Didn't take long, every time. And he starts having a dream, and this dream starts bothering him. So he goes back and asks all the wise men, just like before, to, if they can give him a translation of the dream, and none of them can. Finally, he brings in Daniel. To me, I would be like, Daniel would be the first one I'd bring in, but... Anyway, so finally he brings in Daniel. Daniel is able to give him the interpretation of the dream. And, you know, uh, let's see what verse that is. Um, 19, is it? Yeah. Uh, The king is is asking him um, to give the interpretation, and Daniel was dismayed, it said, and his thoughts alarmed him. See, when the king told him this dream, Daniel knew it was not good. You know, he knew some bad things were coming to the king, and he was afraid to tell him. He wasn't afraid, but he did not want to tell him, you know. Um, but king, the king says, no, you go on and, and tell me the dream. And so he goes on to, to tell uh, the dream about this tree that grew up, and it was strong and greatness, and it reaches to the heaven and your dominion to the ends of the earth. Um, and then a holy one from God comes down from heaven and says, cut down this tree and uh, let, let the portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass him. So Daniel explains to the king what's going to happen to him. Look, you're being humbled, basically. <laughs> you're being brought very low. You're going to be made as a beast in the field for seven years, you know, and that's what's going to happen to you. And it gives a description um, of Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation here. Um, let's see here. Verse 33, it says, Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. So that's the state that this high and mighty king came to, that's where pride got him. Um, For seven years, he behaved and looked like a beast. And uh, then here in verse 34, he says, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. You know, let it never be for us that God has to go to such extremes (laughs) to get us to humble ourselves before him and to acknowledge him. You know, that's what it took for this king and how sad it is that that's what it took. But the end of his life did turn out good. It says, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. So those were the last recorded words of Nebuchadnezzar here that Daniel recorded for us. And, you know, then it goes on to the next, last two chapters of the um, accounts of Daniel are uh, under other kings. So I plan to come back to that and finish up chapter five and six after a few weeks. 
Um, but I'm going to, you know, hand it over. I think Jason's going to be with us next week. So, is it? Yeah. <laughs> Jason's going to be with us next week. So we have some good stuff ahead. So stay tuned in. And thank you all so much for coming in today, coming in this evening. Um, I'll just close this out in prayer. Father God, thank you and praise you for your presence in this house. Thank you for speaking to us this evening. Thank you for your word going forth and accomplishing everything you had for it to accomplish, Lord. Thank you that the hearts were open tonight, ready to receive, Lord. And I just thank you for seekers who are hungry and thirsty for more of you, Lord, that they're going to go and seek out more of more of what you would show them through your word. They're going to study and show themselves approved, Lord. So I thank you that you you go with us as we leave here tonight, that we are covered by the blood, empowered by the word, anointed by the Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We are so glad you could join us for our latest message. We are located right in the center of the town, and we would love for you to call in and see us. Details are on our website at islandchurchdundalk.ie.